You can be seated. Thank you for uh, putting up with our mess around here. Uh, the haze that you see here is not dust from the demolition. It's, for some reason, we like to have clouds in here, so that's where we are. But anyway, it's so good to have you here this morning. Let, let me just say this. Uh, we sing about how great thou art, and of course, we're speaking of our God. Let, let me tell you something that happened uh, that's very interesting. I was telling a couple of people this morning that uh, on Tuesday, uh, they began construction here on, on the campus. Uh, on the same day, uh, a letter comes in with an anonymous gift that basically paid off the Connect Hall. On the same day, that, isn't that pretty cool? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to think of that other than good affirmation from God anyway. So if you look on your handout, you're going to see the Connect Hall's paid off. And then we were able to take about 17000 towards this. And not only that, if you look a little further down, we have pledged to give to the Worship Center expansion about $226,000. Of course, our goal is $360,000 with our budget over the next three years taking care of the rest. So be praying about your involvement with that. But I, I just want to say we do serve a great God. And, uh, and as I say all the time, I love it when he shows off. And he showed off this past week. Uh, also, you'll notice that we have some new members there on the handout, too. So just uh, uh, if you know any of them, welcome them into our congregation. It's so great to see God continuing to add to our church. Well, lastly, let me say this. The last two times Gary preached, uh, he's, last time he preached was the last Sunday of 2021. Uh, and then he preached last Sunday. And Gary thinks, well, maybe rightfully so, the last two times he preached, we brought in over $100,000 on that week. <laughs> and he really thinks it's him. He really does. <laughs> so as a result, Gary will be preaching the next 10 Sundays <laughs> just to see if it's what it is. Anyway, all right. Well, Today we begin our study, a verse-by-verse -verse study of Colossians, and this will last through the summer, and I'm so excited about this because I love these epistles. I love the fact that Colossians is full of issues that happened in the first century that translates here in the 21st century, and of course, we're talking about the threat to doctrine. Paul addresses it here. Also, we see how we've been reconciled to Jesus. Paul addresses that. Talks about exactly who Jesus is as it compares to the, the universe and who he truly is. And I'm just going to tell you, the book is loaded, loaded with just good, pure doctrine. And y'all, that is what is needed in our world today, in our culture today. We need this badly. We need to know the truth of God's Word. And so that's what we're going to be discussing over the next uh, 13 weeks. So the new series is entitled, The Supremacy of Christ. Now let me tell you how we're going to shake this out. This summer we'll be looking at chapters 1, 3, and 4. And then later in the fall we'll go back and pick up chapter 2. Chapter 2 really kind of stands on its own because it's talking about the difference ideas of cults, and we're going to talk about that in the fall. So we're going to skip over chapter 2 for later in the fall, but then we're going to handle the rest of the book 
uh, this summer. So today we're looking at the Christian life delivers. Hopefully, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know the Christian life works. There's seasons in our life in which we may have doubt, but we do know that the Christian life delivers. It delivers what we read in God's Word happens And it happens in a way that we know that affirms our faith. So look at the introduction. I want us to kind of see what Paul's dealing with here in this letter. The first thing we see there is pluralism is the idea that all religions are equal and true. There's that thought that's out there. It was in the first century. There was a similarity to it. Today, uh, 2,000 years later, guess what? The same issues are hanging out here. There are those that say all religions are valid. The problem with that is logically it's impossible because they're speaking of different things. Different religions are speaking of different things. And And it's not even logical that they all can be true at one time. And then we see this idea of syncretism, which is the idea that a person can create their own religion by combining other religions. It's literally the cafeteria approach where you kind of pick and choose what you want to believe. And then Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to demonstrate how the Christian life delivers without any help from the deceptive ideas of the cults or human reasoning. We live in a day in which there's a lot of human reasoning going on. And many times it's presented as truth. And of course, we know that it's not. But there are many who speak into this. And so in chapter 2, Paul will deal with these cultic ideas. But here in chapters 1, 3, and 4, Paul lays out the functional parts of the Christian experience. He's basically telling us that the Christian life delivers what it says it delivers. So look again on your outline. The Christian experience is not only defined by a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but also through certain attitudes, actions, and convictions defined by truth. And Paul is very clear about what that truth looks like. And that's what we're going to be breaking down over these next weeks. So look on your outline. The first thing I want us to see that Paul comes out of the gate telling us is that the Christian life connects us. It connects us together. Many people in our world and community don't feel they're connected to anything. So many times I talk to people and, and they just they feel out of place. They feel out of sorts. I've had people in my own family just feel like they didn't fit in anywhere. Did you know that, and I believe it's intentional, God has placed within us the desire to belong to something? Did you know that? And it's very real. And people will go to extremes to belong to something. Gang-related activities, the things that gangs do in the inner cities and the things that we see. A big part of the pull there is not the activity of the gang, but the fact that they, those are people who feel like they belong to something. And we see how that plays out. The cults, different clubs, organizations, even social media platforms. There are those who just want to feel connected to others. I believe that is a longing that God places within us. But it must be directed towards his desires for us when it comes to this. So we read that the Christian life connects us. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. 
Paul, he's introducing himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And then he says, to the saints, to the saints. Now, how does he connect us? Well, by a new relationship with God, and it's the whole idea of saint, saint. Now, the word saint is used to describe everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm sitting here, or standing here, sitting, looking. I'm standing here looking at you as you sit there. And if you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just tell you this, you are considered by the authority of God's Word, you're a saint. You're a saint. Did you ever get your mind around that? Matter of fact, somebody who wasn't here today, I want you to call them today when you get home from church. (laughs) And I want you to say, I'd like for you to refer to me as Saint such and such from now on. Because that's what the Word of God says. It, it, you are called a saint. Now, again, the word saint, here's what it literally means. It means one who is set apart. You're set apart. So Paul is addressing, if we think about it, the set apart ones in Colossae. Now, what, why is this whole idea important? Well, the idea of saint or, or sainthood or sanctification goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you were to go look into the temple, you would find that there were things that were sanctified unto God. There were workings that were done in the temple. There were utensils, there were things, there were ways of doing, and all those things were set apart to make sure that it delivered what God desired to be delivered in and through the temple. And so what it means, it was set apart for a special use. That's what you see. That's the idea of the temple. And it could be referred to anything that God desires to be set apart to be used for his purpose. Therefore, a saint is someone who has been set apart to God and for God. That's literally what the word means. Now, what have we been set apart for or from? Have you ever thought about that? Not only have we been set apart to something, we've been set apart from something. Now think about that. In the Bible, it says it this way. We've been set apart from sin unto Jesus. Think about that. We've been set apart from darkness unto light. We've been set apart from death unto life. Now think about that. That's important. This word saint really delivers. And it says, this is who you are. This is your identity. Your identity is to no longer walk in darkness to no longer be held captive by sin, to no longer be unto death, but to be unto Jesus, be unto light, and be unto life. Now, the word saint does not necessarily, however, describe how we live all the time. How many of you would agree with that? Matter of fact, next next time somebody does something evil to you, you can just look at them and say, you're sure not acting very saintly today. You can say that to yourself. Because the word saint literally means someone who's been set apart from something to something for a specific task. And there's times we don't actually live like a saint. I want you to think about it. A football team names its quarterback. This person has been given the title as quarterback. But it is only through his skill, his training, his discipline, the coaching, the experience that he gets better at his position. He becomes more and more what a quarterback 
should be as a quarterback that will deliver. His performance begins to live up to his position. It's the same idea of what we're called to. We're called saints. And we are called to be discipled in such a way, and that's what we're hoping to do over these next 14 weeks, is to disciple you through this little book or this little letter in such a way that you can move from just not just holding the title of saint, but that you become the reality of who you've been called. You've been called a saint. And Paul is going to teach us what that looks like, what it means to be set apart from something to something for a specific purpose. Now, again, this could be said of us. So look on your outline. The Christian life not only connects us with the Heavenly Father, but also by a new relationship with others. Look at what he says in Colossians 1-2. He says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now, when he says brethren, he could mean cistern too, I guess. Is that a word, cistern? But anyway... <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we're all here together. We're one big family. And so we're not only saints, but we're also brothers and sisters. That means we're a family. There's a family context to this. And he's addressing a local church in that format, the same way he would say to us. Now, think about this. When we are saved, we become a part of a family. We, we become connected with one another. Now, now I'm going to say something that some people, I hope you won't find this offensive, but I'm just going to tell you the way it is. I, I've found, and, and I've, I've done this, I've been a, a part of the, the Christian church for many years. I got saved when I was eight years old. I, I can't think of a time where I wasn't connected to a church in my whole life. And throughout that, since that, well, since I was born, really. <laughs> I was drugged to church just like many of you. But anyway, but the point is this. The times I felt connected to the church were times where I went in, and you're going to hear me say it again, when I was in a small group. A small group connected me. But you know what connected me even more? Serving the kingdom of God through the local church. Let me tell you this. The people sitting in this room who feel the most connected, I guarantee you, are the people who are in a small group doing life together with other people, and not only that, encouraging one another to live as a, a saintly life, but also those who are serving the kingdom of God. That is the connection. That's what truly makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want you to think of it also a little more deeper than that. We're not only connected. If you look at the scripture carefully, the Bible says we're interconnected. Now think about what that means. That means this. I believe if you, just like these new people who've come to our church, these new members, God has brought you here to interconnect with us. Now, what does it mean to interconnect? Not just connect, but interconnect. It means that we are interconnected in such a way that we become a body. A body. In such a way that we use your personality, your gifting. You're bringing all that to the table when you join our local church. And you come in here, and we not only are connecting with one another, we're interconnected in such a way that we, as a group, have been called from the world to help build the kingdom of God. And we become the body of Christ. That's the way the Bible describes us. So we're not only connected, we're interconnected. 
And that's what God desires for us as a church. So look on your outline. The Christian life not only connects us by a new relationship, but also by a new location. And that location is in Christ, which determines destination. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 2 again. Look at the second part of that verse. And faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now, in Christ is a very important phrase. If you were to say, tell me the most important phrase in Scripture, this would have to be near the top, near the top. And here's how you're described. Think of this. You're a saint. That's what the Bible says. That's your position. They act like the position. But you're not only that, you're in Christ. That's your location. That's how you're seen. So you're in Christ. Paul repeats this, this phrase over and over again in almost all his letters. He, he brings that to the table. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's try to get to where he could be coming at this from. Look at the verse here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul also wrote this. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So here's what we need to understand. We are all born in Adam. Okay? Adam, Eve, remember those guys? Garden of Eden, remember the story? Okay? We were all born from Adam and Eve. Okay? And so it comes down to where we are now. And so here we are now. The day we were born, on our birth date, we were born in Adam. We were born in mankind, humankind, however you want to put it. Okay? And basically, we were born into that. Everyone who's ever lived was born into that, okay? But now, we can move from being not only in Adam, which does identify us as human beings, but now we're in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus. We are now in Christ. And what does he say? That's when you're really made alive, that's when you're really operating in the desires of God and the reality in which he created you for. And that's where your fulfillment will come from. So from this verse, we learn that our location determines our destination. Because in Adam, if we just remain in Adam, we're going to die. And we're not only going to die here physically, we're going to die in eternity and, of course, the Bible calls that a place of condemnation called hell. But then those who are in Christ, we were not only born in Adam, but now we're standing in Christ, which means we have eternal life. Now, think about that. That's what he's trying to get us to see. So we are in Adam, born as sinners. That means if we die in our physical condition as sinners, we're, we'll, we will be eternally separated from God and the things of God. So this verse means we as followers of Jesus were born in Adam. That was our physical birth. But now we're born again in Christ. That is our spiritual birth. So think about this. You have two birth dates. You have the day you were born and the day you became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. For me, it was July of 1973 is when I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I, that's when my faith walk began. That's when I, the location of who I was was no longer identified in Adam. I was identified now in Christ. 
And guess what? Over all these years, I've learned more and more what it means to be identified in Christ. And that's what it's all about. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us. So when you are saved, you have a new spiritual location. You are in Christ. Now, what does all this mean? Well, some have described it this way. It means you live in the atmosphere or the reality of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's your reality now. Everything you see, your perspective, how you live, how you conduct yourself, is all now in the reality of being in Christ. You say, what does that look like? Well, birds live in the atmosphere of air. Fish live in the atmosphere of water. Trees live in the atmosphere of dirt. Before I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, the Bible says I lived in darkness. I lived in my sin. That was the, my identity. But now I'm in Christ. It's a whole new reality. It's a whole new reality. I'm in light now. I'm walking in this reality of perspective. My relationships change. My responsibilities change. How I see my struggles are supposed to change. Everything changes. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. Next, the Christian life connects us by a new location, which determines destination, but it also which determines our daily living. So, so think about this, this new location. I'm in Christ. I, I was in Adam, okay? Now I've been translated into Christ, okay? So that's going to determine my destination, my eternal destination, but it also determines my daily living. Think about that. It should affect how we live. Now, how many of you agree we live in a sinful, wicked world? I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm appalled at some of the news that I'm hearing in this day and age. It's appalling. I, I mean, I look at it, and I'm sitting here like, who in the world would think that that is right? I mean, do you? Do you sit there and think the same thing? I mean, it, 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 it's head-scratching almost. It's like, What? This is reality now of living in the society in which we live. And we all sit there and we look at it. We live in a sinful world in the atmosphere of a culture that is ungodly. I heard a pastor say not long ago, and I thought it was really good the way he said it. He basically said, if we're shocked, <laughs> this was kind of convicting to me because I just gave you my reaction to, to the world. But he said this. He says, if we're shocked at how the world conducts itself, then we really haven't really read the Bible. <laughs> That's pretty convicting there, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us the evil and the wickedness of the culture and of the world. It's born out of the fact of people being in Adam. They are in darkness. But now we're in Christ. And so the, how then? How do we as a follower of Jesus live like we ought to live in this kind of culture? How many of you, it, it, you sometimes feel like living uh, the godly life is swimming upstream? How many of you feel that way? Okay, good. That's a good sign. That's what it should feel like. We're swimming upstream. We're going against the flow. But now, now here's what we need to understand. We can't do that in and of ourselves. We can't do it because, and here's one thing we need to understand. The fact that we're in Christ gives us the power to overcome. It gives us that. Now, I want you to think about this. In July 1969, when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, 
he had to have a spacecraft to get there. Okay? How many of y'all remember seeing all that? Some of y'all are sitting here like, that was a long time ago. Of course, I wasn't even born. I mean, I was four, and I, I, I vaguely remember it, okay? But, but here's what's interesting. Outside of the spacecraft, listen, he did not stand a chance to get to the moon, did he? Nope. nope. Thank you for that. Anyway, <laughs> but inside, inside the spacecraft, his mission was a success. As long as he was in the spacecraft, he could do what he was called to do. He could perform in the way he was called to perform. Outside of that, on the way to the moon, it would have ended in destruction, correct? Right. So just as Neil Armstrong is in the spacecraft, we are in Christ. That's the only way we'll survive it. That's the only way we'll get to fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill in a culture that surrounds us. We got it. Just as Armstrong was in the spacecraft, we're called to be in Christ. The same is true. It gives us the power to overcome our limitations, to the power to overcome sin in our culture. This is how the Christian life connects us. We are saints set apart to God, and in Christ we have a new potential with new, a new reality. Think about how the Bible even describes it in Romans chapter 8. Look here. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are where? In Christ Jesus. In the spaceship. We're in there. That's where we are. We're locked in. We're in Christ. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. In Adam, we're in darkness. In sin, it overcomes us at times. In Christ, we're capable of living the reality in which the Bible says that we are. That's what it says. For the law of the spirit of life is in Christ Jesus that has made me free from the law of sin and death. There was something that happened for me being in Adam when I was physically born, but now that I'm in Christ, the law and all those other things... They don't, they don't hold a candle to what the reality is I live in now. And it's above the law. So I don't have to go by the thou shall not and thou shall do. Can they guide me? Yeah, they can guide me. But I'm in a whole new reality now. I've got a whole different perspective on everything. And that's what Paul is attempting to tell us. Next, the Christian life changes us. Now, now let me say this. And this is a bold statement, but it's true. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, li listen to me carefully. You are a changed person. You're changed. Okay? If not, you need to check what really happened <laughs> if you didn't. Because the Bible says we're changed. Now, now think of this. Some of you sitting here, however, you're, maybe some of you are sitting here and you're like, you know something? I hear what, you got, I hear what you're saying. I would like to give my life to Christ, but I'm not sure I can live it. Have I not proven to you yet that you can't live it in and of yourself? You can't live it over here with your identification in Adam. You can't do it. Bible says you got to be in Christ. Bible puts it simply. You can't do it on your own. Go ahead and admit that. Some would say, I would like to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm not going to come to Christ until I'm sure I can live it. 
you're not going to be able to on your own. There's got to be something that's transformative in your life. And what's transformative is where your life was or is and where it can be. Where it can be. It's got to be transformative. You cannot live the Christian life because it requires changes you can't make on your own. The only way it happens is being in Christ. So how does that happen? Look on your outline. Life change comes through God's first touch. And do you know what his first touch towards you was? Grace. Grace. That, that's it. Grace. How do we know? Colossians 1, the third part of that uh, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you could look at that and say, well, that was a common greeting for the first century. And it was. Matter of fact, Paul began a lot of his letters the exact same way. But I don't believe there are words that are wasted in Scripture. I personally don't believe that. I believe they're there for a reason. And when I look at this, and I even look at the order in which Paul writes this, he says, grace to you and peace. Those are very important words. The first encounter we have with God, listen, comes through grace. That's the first encounter we have with him. So if you're sitting here today and the Holy Spirit of God's working in you, and by the way, none of us come to God except by the way of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit is offering us when he comes to us? He's offering us grace. He's offering us something we do not deserve. Do we deserve salvation? No. The Bible says when we were undone, when we were in our sin, he came to us. That means we totally undeserved. And that's what he's talking about here. So, so there's grace. Our first encounter with us is through grace. He introduces himself to us through grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor extended to us. Grace is God literally reaching out to us. But there's two aspects of grace. First of all, there's grace for saving. And the Bible is very clear about that. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So let me ask you a question. How are we saved? By grace, through faith. Okay? Look at the second part. And that not of yourselves. There's nothing other than you surrendering your life, giving your life to Christ. There's nothing you can do where you were. He reached out to you with grace, and he's inviting you to be in Christ. A whole new reality. And, and so, so basically, it is the gift of God that he came to you and he extended his grace to you. So we are saved, listen, not because there is good in us, but because there is grace in God. You may say, I'm not worthy to be saved. You're not. None of us were. Matter, matter of fact, if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, I'm just someone God could not overlook. <laughs> Bless your heart. I don't think there's a whole lot going on there if that's, your, if that's your story. None of us are. Listen to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love. He puts his love on display. Listen to this. How does he put his love on display? He puts it towards us in that while we were still sinners, undone, not a thing we could do about it, Christ died for us. That's amazing when you think about it. 
Not only do we have grace for saving, but also grace for surviving. How many of you agree that this world sometimes is difficult to survive? It is, isn't it? How many of you, when you, when you go through something, I don't know about you, but this is where I've been at times in my life. I'll go through something, and I sit there, and I think, how in the world does someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, how do they deal with this kind of stuff? How do they even go about it? But he gives us this. Grace in our lives travels past salvation and into our lives as we become more like Jesus. How many of you agree that we need grace daily? Yeah, not, ju- not, not to keep us saved, but once we're saved, that grace was extended to us to save us. Now we need grace just to survive the, the moments of life. We need it. How do we know that? Paul Again, don't you love Paul? Don't you love the fact he's very transparent? Paul says this, and he basically was having the struggle of his lifetime. You probably remember the story. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is basically asking God to remove something out of his life that is causing him a major hindrance. There's something that he, I mean, it's almost, it, he almost describes it as something that was bigger than he was. And, and he didn't want it in his life anymore. Three times He pleaded with God to take it away. Do you know what God's response was? No, Paul, I think it's best that it remains. Now, how many of you would be mad at God at that point? Wouldn't you? I mean, God, here's how I would probably handle it. Lord, if you take this away, I could do a whole lot more for you. you. You know what I'm saying? God, if you just... Come on, I mean, we plead, we negotiate, and it appears that Paul may have done a little bit of all of it. But listen to what it says. Look at the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is where grace comes into surviving. And Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The grace that saved you is also a grace that is sufficient to help you in your time of need. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He's basically saying, if you want to see my grace displayed in your life, if you want to see the reality of grace in your life, it may come during a time you're most vulnerable. You're the weakest. That's what it says. Therefore, Paul said, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He got to the point where he's no longer wishing that that go away. He got to the point in his life where he was saying, you know something, God? You know more than I know. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. I want it gone. You say it's necessary. Let's just, I'll go with what you're saying. And you know something? I like it when you display your love for me. I like it when you display your grace in my life. And if this can meet that and this does that, I'll take it on. I'll take it on. Wow. What a different perspective. But how do we receive grace? Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now think about that. The throne of God. Think about it. The throne of God, the central point of the universe, is described how? As the throne of grace. How many of you are grateful for that? Did you know there's going to come a time where it will be a throne of judgment? But right now, you know what it is? It's a throne of grace. A throne of grace available to all. It's there. 
Why would we want to do that? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of what? Need. Need. Now, does that automatically mean that everything we bring up to him, he's a yes man? Yes, 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 yes. Uh -uh. Paul proved there sometimes he says what? Nope. It's going to stay. But what did he say he'd bring with it if it stayed? Grace. Mercy. It'll be sufficient to get you through. He says it's necessary. Those are tough things. Next, not only do we have God's first touch, grace, we have God's second touch, peace. Colossians chapter 1, the, the latter part, grace to you and peace from whom? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, I want you to think about this. This is a, a great concept when you think about it. Grace always comes before peace. Always does. That's why people are unhappy, unhappy with life. That, that, they, they don't have peace because they've never experienced grace. That's really a great concept when you start thinking about life. The word peace literally means to put together. How many of you walked in here today and you could confidently say, I am well put together today? Now, looking at you, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I, I mean, so many times when we think we're well put together, we, we've got the right clothes on and everything matches. Honey, how's this look? Oh, you look well put together. Thank you, babe. But um, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's what was the condition of your soul when you walked in here? Were, were you well put together? Is everything held together? That's, that's what peace means. Peace does not mean, however, the absence of trouble and, and, and struggle. But it does mean that in the midst of the trouble and the struggle, there is someone who is holding it together for you. And that's what it means to be in Christ. So therefore, you know what could easily have happened this morning? Someone could have walked in this door and they could, have, they could have the joy that surpasses all understanding, the peace that surpasses all understanding. They walk in here and, and normally the load that they would be carrying, if it was put on you, you would just totally collapse. But they're able to walk in here well put together. How does that happen? They're in Christ. They've understood that his grace is sufficient. They understand that there's a deeper meaning. God's done something in their life. Listen, I've been at people's deathbeds quite a bit, more than I want to be. It is amazing the peace that you see at someone's deathbed. I'm talking about someone who's not just unconscious. I'm talking about where they're sitting there and you walk in there and you don't have a clue what to say to them other than Jesus loves you and man, you know, those kind of words. And, and they sit there and you walk out and you're more encouraged then you felt like you encouraged them. It will blow your mind how someone can be at that moment in life and still have that kind of surviving grace and that kind of surviving peace. It's amazing when you watch it happen. So, so what does all this mean? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. How many of you have already broken that one this morning? Be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Take it to Him. Realize you're in Christ. Give it to Him. You're in the spacecraft. You're there. You're okay. Everything's fine as long as you're in the craft, right? And what will happen next? 
the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know something? I've gone through some of the roughest days of my life. And for some crazy reason, I got a peace about it. You ever heard someone say that? I hear that occasionally. I've been there before. I've seen it happen. I've observed it and felt it, lived in that reality. There's something that comes supernaturally. Will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Why is it important that it guards your heart and your mind? Because I don't know about you, but there's been times in my past when trouble would hit my life and I wanted to escape. And my escapes at times in life have not been good places. Can, can someone be transparent right now and tell me you're the same way? It can take you places you don't need to go. And, and, and the Bible says, not only will we have the peace that surpasses all understanding, there's something else that comes into play. It will guard your heart and your mind. So the doubts, the enemy tries to bring the doubts. The enemy tries to get you to, to look for an escape in your life that you know you shouldn't go to. He'll hold it all together for you. But you got to be in him. When we, listen, we lose our peace when our heart and mind are torn apart. This is where we get the word worry. The word worry or anxiety means to tear apart. The word peace means to put together. So when Jesus comes into your life, he puts you together. Sin breaks you apart, but he puts you together. Now keep in mind, peace is not the absence of trouble, like I said before. It's not the absence of trouble. It's the presence of God where you sense he's right there with you. He's right there in the midst of it. And that is why the Christian life delivers. And that's the reason nothing else in the world can deliver like the Christian life, when we're living how God desires us to live. Lastly, the Christian life completes us. There's three words he's going to use here in these next verses. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying all, always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Here's three things, and psychologists will even agree. How many of you are afraid of psychology at times? I mean, it's like psychology has no place. I, I'm with you. I, I mean, listen, the whole roots of psychology, the whole field's based on evolution, which is crazy. But sometimes, I think the world can stumble into truth sometimes, don't you? Oh, yeah. Biology is just, just a study of how God did things. Psychology just tries to explain a little bit more how we're made. But even psychologists agree with this. Psychologists agree that we all need love, faith, and hope in our lives. They agree with that. And, and so what do we need? Look on your outline. Someone to care for. We need love. We need love. We need love to, to, to come to us, and we need to give love. We need someone to believe in. That's faith. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that becomes our link to God himself. And then, thirdly, something to anticipate. That is hope. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. In heaven. Now when I go, and it took me years to learn this, now when I go to someone who's in extreme difficulty, maybe even close to death, I've learned over the years, and I get it right out of God's word, there's three things that they need the most in that time. 
They need faith. They need love. And they need hope. And you know what's so great about the word hope in Scripture? It's not wishful thinking. It's the assurance that God's going to come through. That's what it is. Here's the application. Are you experiencing and living what the Christian life delivers? Is that your experience? If not, I'm just going to be honest with you. Number one, you may not be a follower of Jesus if this is not your experience. Number two, it may be that you need to be discipled more, that you understand God's word more thoroughly, that the promises of God can become a reality in your life. But God wants this for you. So if you're not experiencing these things, why not? That is a journey or evaluation you need to go through to understand more fully who you are in Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray as the instrumentalists come? Father, we just come to you this morning. We just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for just how good you are to us. And even in something as simple as we saw this morning, just a general greeting from Paul. Father is loaded with doctrine, doctrine that we can live our lives by. And Father, I just pray for those that are in this room right now, Father. Lord, I look around this room and I've had conversations with people around some of the same topics about a grace that's extended, about a peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, I see the faces of those who've experienced it firsthand. But then, Father, there's some in this room that may not. Maybe, maybe this reality is not a reality to them. Maybe they don't understand this. This is foreign to them. Father, if it's because they don't truly know you, I pray today will be the day they come to truly know you as their Lord and Savior. But second of all, maybe there's someone and maybe they came to know you sometime past, but they've never grown in you. They've never really fully understood what it means to be in Christ, to have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, I pray that they'll take a careful evaluation of where they are today. Lord, be with them. Show them your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us?